what I discovered I've got is a, a really nice little niche that not that many people actually occupy, which is that I really know the research industry. I absolutely love the industry. It's, it's you know, been in it for years and years and years. Still find it exciting and fascinating. But I can also write, which is not necessarily a skill that all researchers have. Well, I was going to say particularly on the quant side, but, but in general, you know, we're taught to write up research reports in a very, very different way in a very sort of cautious way, being very careful about how we express ourselves about the data. And that's not the same thing as writing something up to have impact and make it readable and make people excited to read it. Welcome back to the Box Clever podcast, the podcast that gives you an insight into the people that do insight best. Who did we speak to today? It was Judith Stake. She's a freelance writer, researcher, and content creator. We spoke about the AMSR. She spoke a lot about AI, really interesting point of view on that. We talked about doing the wrong A-levels, and we talked about cheese. I think you'll enjoy it. So I guess a good way to start would be, could you could you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what it is that you do? Okay, so my name's Judith Stegg and I am a uh, writer and content consultant in the market research industry. And what that means is that I work primarily for agencies, but, but also for some client side researchers helping them to use the written word to get the most impact out of their insights. So I do a lot of marketing content like white papers, thought leadership and blogs and that sort of thing. I also sometimes do um, you know client facing reports, but but primarily I'm 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 helping people, yeah, as I said, get impact from their insights through writing. And how did you get to this point, Judith? What's your story? What's your journey? I was a researcher. I was at um, GFK the last time I had a proper job, which was uh, over 10 years ago now. And I was qual, quant, B2B and consumer. I was in the business tech division. I was a research director. And I kind of always assumed that, you know, that's just what you do. You carry on in the agency, you get promoted and, and, and that was it. And I loved agency life, but I don't live in London and I was commuting in and it was fine. You know, it's just, again, what you did and it was quite normal. But then I had a baby and it was like, oh, uh, yeah, I, I can't do this anymore. Uh, it's really, really hard. I don't want to do the commute. And I didn't want to just go and be a sort of freelance quality because it's a very crowded field. And also, you know, the same problems would have still been there, you know, going to London to do groups and stuff like that. So long story short, I kind of cast around with my very, very supportive boss at GFK and said, look, you know, there must be something I can do that, that I can do for this company that I can do from, from home. But um, I don't have to come in. I don't have to manage a team. That's the bit I'm really shit at anyway, quite frankly terrible manager but they said well what are you good at I said well I'm really good at the creative side I love writing I love you know, putting together presentations uh, you know I love the, the analysis and the insight and all of that sort of bit and they said oh okay well um, we've got an idea we've got a massive backlog of case studies because obviously they're the best marketing tool for a research agency and nobody wants to write them because once you finish a client-facing piece of work you're off to the next piece and you know agency life is very busy and nobody wants to do them but because I had obviously a lot of interviewing skills, because I'd been there for some time, I knew everybody throughout the company. It was really ideal for me to get, kind of pick up this massive backlog. And um, they made me quit 
but they hired me back as a temp. And I spent a few months just going around the whole company, finding out what projects have been done, getting the client details, ringing them up, doing interviews with them, getting testimonials and putting together really, really good case studies. And then bit by bit, as people found out that there was somebody in the company who could write, they started asking me to do other things as well. So for example, we've got to write a, an article for our, our client-facing magazine. Could you ghostwrite that for me? Yeah, sure, I could. Oh, I've got to do a really good background for this proposal. You know, can you do some desk research and write that off me? Yeah, absolutely. And again, long story short, I figured that, well, if GFK needs this, other agencies must need this service as well. Interestingly, the marketing team had tried hiring a regular copywriter to do the case studies, and it hadn't worked at all because they didn't understand the industry. What I discovered I've got is a a really nice little niche that not that many people actually occupy, which is I really know the research industry. I absolutely love the industry. It's, It's, you know, been in it for years and years and years. Still find it exciting and fascinating. But I can also write, which is not necessarily a skill that all researchers have. Well, I was going to say particularly on the quant side, but but in general, you know, we're taught to write up research reports in a very, very different way, in a very sort of cautious way, being very careful about how we express ourselves about the data. And that's not the same thing as writing something up to have impact and make it readable and make people excited to read it. So, yeah, I found this sort of little niche and I've been doing it for more than 10 years now. And it's absolutely brilliant. I love it. It's lovely to hear that somebody has been able to step away from, you know, the qual quant role where you do have to be jack of all trades. You have to be seven out of ten at least on kind of everything, which is challenging, isn't it? To be, can't really have a weak point and, and get on with it. But the thing I really wanted to ask you about was what made you a bad manager? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, just... I think that it's a big problem in a lot of industries in that you're good at something. And so the only thing that people do with you when you're good at it is they promote you. And the only way that they promote you is to manage other people doing it and not actually end up doing the thing that you loved anymore in the first place. And there's no reason that, I mean, management is a real skill. Being a good manager is a really, is a, is a, is a skill and it needs lots of training and it needs lots of, you know, People need to need to understand how to do it properly. And just because you've been good at doing the thing does not necessarily mean that you're going to be a good manager at all. And I think for me, I was just such a I, I used to overmanage people and I, I I didn't I didn't like letting go of the quality of what they were doing, particularly the written bit, the written output as well, because you know, obviously that's something that is very dear to my heart. And I think I just used to not delegate enough and not trust people enough and I just I just it just wasn't a, a good fit for me that's not to say we are with proper some proper management training that yeah I could probably been a good manager but you know it just it it, it and I just I wasn't even really aware of it so I thought about it afterwards and I and, and it wasn't until, until we had to go to the tribunal <laughs> you realized that there were maybe some quite serious serious and failings I, you know, maybe nobody would speak to me anymore <laughs> It wasn't until I made that statement to to the time it's like, you know, you're making me come in to manage people. And that's the bit I really hate. And, you know, and then I was like, actually, yeah, I do hate that. I don't think I'm great at it either. So, yeah, there you go. (laughs) And as a writer, kind of researcher and content creator, how do you balance all of these roles? They're they're kind of all very much linked, really. And it's sort of, they're balanced by the extent of of what I'm doing for a client. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it may be that a client has 
a very, very good idea of what they want to say. They just don't have the time or necessarily the writing skills to say it. Um, in which case, I'm 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 pretty much just a writer. I'll I'll do I'll yeah take a brief and I'll I'll produce something and they'll go yeah that's great and then they'll pretend they wrote it, which is <laughs> which is absolutely fine because that's what I'm there for. But it, it may be that people come to me and say, look, you know, we know we need to do some content marketing. We want to do some thought leadership. We just we've never done it before. We don't really know what we're doing. You know, we don't have a tone of voice. We don't you know. And then I can go right to the the beginning of all of that and to and that's where the sort of content consultancy and the thinking mm-hmm. about you know messaging and tone and putting together a campaign and all that sort of bit goes goes together and then I can actually sort of, you know, do the writing at the end of the day as well or I actually do some training as well and I can help people sort of train up their teams to be better writers and to and it's not it's not so much like just writing training it's that that very particular thing of taking in an insights piece or taking a deck that you you know because you you put all those all those charts together in your deck don't you because people need to know what the data say but then it's taking that and making that into an impactful piece of writing and that's a, that's a very particular sort of skill set so I can actually help people to sort of you know rather than just giving them a fish to to give them their fishing rod and be able to go out and fish for themselves yeah. I that, that analogy as far as it's going to go it's very interesting because if you think about all of the written work that someone like me will have done over the last few years, I don't know if I've ever had any training in how to write. You just either learn by osmosis, I suppose, or you you don't. You just carry on writing badly. Well, also, I think there's there's definitely a skill in knowing you know, what to to write about or if there's, you know, spotting those opportunities and extracting those kind of golden nuggets if you think something's award-worthy, for example, or something's you know worth a campaign it's also having a skill trying to find those those bits you know from particular projects yeah absolutely I think that that very much is part of it and I think that part of this that suits me very well as well because um I mean I'm a I'm very sort of top low I know lot I know a little bit about an awful lot of things because I kind of I work across the whole industry so I'm not an expert in any particular technique and I'm not an expert in any particular market but I am required to think very very quickly and get myself might get my head into you know whatever that topic that anybody is so it's being able to sort of know a lot about what's going on in the market at, at quite a high level and then that and that helps me to sort of spot those stories. Or I mean, awards is another thing you mentioned, and I do a lot of award writing for people as well. And it, it is about sort of saying, well, okay, which of your projects might be award worthy? What is it about it that's different? What is it about it that's special? Why should it win? You know, yeah. Which award we looking for, and that sort of thing. So I do a lot of that that sort of thing as well. How do you feel about AI and Chat uh, GPT in 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 particular? In terms of writing and refining, go on, tell us. I, yeah, I think believe Judith has re- you've re- written an article recently, haven't you? Uh, I, I have. I have another. I have another couple on the on the on the go as well because I have a lot of thoughts about this and I find it really really interesting. And you know, I I think and and one of the things I said in this article actually, I think at the very very bottom level of what I do, which I don't really do an awful lot of, if I just wanted to write a load of blogs for SEO and for no other purpose. And I didn't even really expect them to be read particularly. And they, they were just purely a tool for driving people to the website. I don't think I would be hiring a writer anymore. I think I would be using like a, an app like Jasper or something like that that's designed specifically for blog writing. 
and, and so that's very obviously threatening to me in, in what I do but I've experimented a lot with different writing with ChatGPT and with Jasper and anything above that that you actually want humans to read it I just don't think it's there yet I mean it's it's really plausible I think an, another analogy that I've used at, at times is that it's like candy floss you know it's sort of spun into this confection that looks uh, it looks really plausible it's really attractive you think oh wow you know it absolutely makes sense that the the grammar is good the syntax is good you know it's got a, a it's got a narrative flow but when you kind of try and bite into it there's nothing really there there's no substance there's no real there's no real sort of bite it's it's like an airplane magazine sort of writing as well inoffensive to anyone nothing to really you know kind of kind of grab you and i mean another thing that i do a lot as well is i help people with their own personal profile so you know thought leadership for an agency but actually you know building the profile of individual people within that in in what they write and publish and one of the absolute key things about that is authenticity and an authentic voice and you know you cannot get that from AI because it's clearly just rehashing what's already out there Mm. and it's doing it in a very clever way but but you know, you've got to be quite brave to put yourself out there and write a thought leadership piece or write something that's about raising your profile. And and you have to 100% stand by what you've said. You have to feel that, you know, it's coming from the heart and it's coming from you. And so, you know, even if you did get AI to 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 write the piece, I think you would have, to, I mean, I would certainly have to go through it with a fine tooth comb and, and, and you know, edit it hugely. Um, so I think, for that sort of writing, I think we're, we're not there yet. Um, I certainly use it. I use it to generate ideas um, and it's quite helpful, although its ideas are always a bit off, but they usually, it's like a secondary process. They, they ge- it, it generates a bunch of stuff and then that sparks you to have your own ideas, perhaps better and perhaps faster and mm. perhaps things that you might not have thought of. It's good for kind of generating sort of lists of things and bullet points that might go into an article so for example you know um, what are the you know if you're writing about segmentation what are the you know the the main uses of segmentation you can get it to generate a list and some bullet points and stuff and you think oh okay yeah that's good that's quite handy and then you can edit it and make it human sounding so it's good for little chunks of, of things that you might do but it's in that sense it's not a massive time saver it's a, perhaps a bit of a time saver but it's not kind of this you know it's going to do everything at the push of a button and you never have to worry about anything again. I'm, I'm going to keep experimenting because I find it fascinating. One thing, and actually I'm writing articles at the moment, one thing that it is surprisingly and frighteningly good at is poetry. Really? Oh, well, there we go. I didn't, I didn't know that. I belong to a sort of creative writing group as well and I, I did a bit of an experiment with them ages back where um, we have a theme every week. And so I took up that week's theme. Um, I don't recall it as it was at the moment. And I, I got ChatGPT to write a poem on that theme. And then I didn't pretend it was my work. I said, I'm going to read something out. It's not something I wrote, but I read it out to my group. And they were like, oh, wow, that's really amazing. I was like, yeah, written by AI. And they were like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and they, but they said, it was good. It, it, it does make sense to me that the AI would be able to write good poetry. Because when you think about, about poetry, well, I would come at it from, you've got to be incredibly creative. But one of my friends dabbles in the world of poetry and there's so much form and structure and there's so many sort of rules to it. And that's what AI is going to know, isn't it? So, you know, that it does make sense that that style of writing, to some extent, is produced well by a computer. 
I, I think it's the rules-based nature of it and the, and the, because actually a lot of the time creativity comes from boundaries and constraints. Mm. Yeah. And, and there are, you know, you don't have to apply those constraints in poetry, but there are conventions and there are structures and, and that makes it a lot easier to be creative, I think. Mm. And, and it, so it does, it, it, it seems surprising because on the other side, you know, what is the point of poetry? And poetry is about expression and it's about expressing really deep human things, isn't it? So it, it's it's paradoxical in a way that it would be really good at it, but yeah. actually given that rules-based nature and the structural nature of it, it's not as surprising when you start to think about it like that. But my question is, well, what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. The next time the client demands outputs in iambic pentameter, I'll be straight onto AI. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can imagine that that's something that you're dealing with a lot. <laughs> yeah. yes. Well, you never know. Depends on the client, I suppose, doesn't it? <laughs> I guess it does. I wanted to take you all the way back, Judith, to the start of your journey. You know, how did how, tell us about your upbringing. Tell us about young Judith. How did you get to where you are now? Oh, my goodness. Okay, young Judith. Blimey. There's, there's casting, you know, just a few years back. Well, interestingly, I've, 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 I, I came into Margaret's section a really circuitous route, and I, a lot of people say they fell into it, and I absolutely did fall into it, like like so many people. But I think the 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 big the big thing, the big thing that went wrong for me very early in my life, I got pushed to do the wrong A levels. I loved English, and actually, all I ever wanted to be was a writer. To be honest, when I was at school, but I was really really good at sciences and the the thing about sciences is that you can get very high marks because it's much more objective mm. and so I, w- I used to do very well in maths physics and chemistry but I loved English but I didn't have two other A-levels to go with English that would timetable very well and because I was really good at maths and because I was a girl and the school was like oh yeah you know let's have a let's you know we want we want to say that our girls are doing very well with maths and the sciences so I got really pushed into doing maths physics and chemistry A-level and like anyone who knew me would have just said, actually, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be doing English and just find something else to do because that's what I love. Anyway, so I ended up going, oh, well, yeah, I've got these A-levels and I kind of science sort of degree and I don't really like, you know, what to do. So I ended up doing a food science degree because I love food mainly. And actually, had I have really understood at the time, what I was really interested in was all the psychology around food. And if there'd been a sort of food and marketing thing, then then, I, then that would have been ideal, really. Yeah, so I, I graduated and I was just like, oh, I don't want to like, you know, all the kind of graduate jobs around that. I just don't want to do that. And I'd, I'd always done telephone interviewing as a job through uni. You know, you, you, you work to make like bar work, telephone interviewing. Those are the two things that I did. I did most of. And so I just kind of carried on. I was like, oh, I'll go and do some interviewing for a while and I'll work in a pub and I'll figure out what to do. And then I just kind of liked it there and I just sort of stayed. Then I went, I actually went off um, and did an MSc in information technology. A friend had done this. It was a, it was a brilliant government funded course to get more women into computing. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll go and do that. And so I went and did that and I got a placement uh, for my dissertation. I was in Bristol and I I got a placement at um, Hewlett Packard Labs, which is the most fascinating place. It's like the advanced R&D labs where they're dealing with all the sort of, you know, years and years out technology. And they had a lot of um, kind of psychologists and user studies researchers and those sorts of people there. But they didn't have any link with consumers. And they were just at the time thinking, oh, we really need to kind of think about 
like what, what people actually want. You know, it was revolutionary at the time. And I sort of came along, you know, on my dissertation and interviewed for a placement. And they said, well, we're interested in somebody who knows something about market research. I was like, oh, yeah, I know loads about market research. Yeah, yeah. Like I've been a telephone interview. I was like, oh, yeah, I, I can do that. Yeah, I know loads about that. They were like, great. And they sent me off driving around Bristol. I didn't, yeah, I, I had that not long past my driving test. I was like driving around in this car interviewing business people about their use of technology and it was so fun and I I, I just loved it so much I ended up getting a job there and, and working there for a few years and then kind of went into the agency route and sort of turned up in agencies thinking that I knew about market research and I'd not been classically trained at all and actually discovered I didn't really know very much <laughs> at all and had to kind of go back to first principles and then yeah then ended up at GFK and I was there for years and was really really happy there and until the events described beforehand so that's it. Positive history. Oh, amazing. Well, wonderfully for us, Judith has spontaneously mentioned food. Yeah. So, Judith, talk to us about food heaven for you. Oh, food heaven. Like, at one point, when I was a little younger, it would have been, like, chocolate and puddings and stuff like that. But I, my sweet tooth has just, has just waned as I've got older. And now I would have to say, like, cheese. Mm, good answer seriously like the whole world of cheese yeah you know I could never be a vegan because of the world of cheese that is just you know just the best world to be in really and a glass of red wine ultimate cheese board you've got three cheeses Judith what are you going for oh okay mm. so Comte definitely mm-hmm. um something blue and kind of a bit runny and stinky yeah and perhaps a goat's cheese or something kind of really bland and rubby like Emmental or something like that. Quite yeah. a fan. No, no, yeah. it's just, it's good. You need contrast, don't you? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, good choice. I do think there's something to be said. I think we, we take it for granted in England, but a good quality cheddar is, it has its, I mean, it's very versatile, but it is a great cheese, don't you think? Yeah, like a really, one that like, your your tongue goes into like a spasm almost (laughs) yeah we need to have a farmer's market locally and they used to do a locally like a amazing like just so strong like your eyes would roll your head it was it was really good (laughs) yeah it's yeah you can't you can't go wrong with a really good strong cheddar talk to us about the wine then judith you said you know we're having a cheese board having a glass of red does the red does the red matter or are you not fussy well well, yeah, do you know what? Yeah, whatever, bring it on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I again, I drink a lot less than I used to. I mean, there was a lot of heavy emphasis on that. It implies I used to drink an awful lot. Yeah, it's it's more about a nice glass of wine with a meal these days than mm-hmm. than anything. Not so. So I'd probably trade up on the wine a bit as well because I because I'd have less of it. And I, I'm a, I'm a Shiraz fan. I do like a Shiraz. Absolutely. I mean, I've got no palate really. I don't. I don't think. <laughs> and I think the trouble is, you have a nice bottle and you think I really really like that, and then it's just gone as into the ether, isn't it? You never know what it was. Yeah. No. Just a dream and a mystery. <laughs> Judith, when I first had the pleasure of meeting you, it was through the AMSR. Yes. And I was um, wondering if you could tell me what the the latest going on there. Maybe explain to our, our audience a little bit about what they do and and how you volunteer there as well. Because I know you do some of their content writing, don't you? One of your previous Soapbox guests, Phyllis McFarlane, is a, a stalwart of the, the AMSR. For those who don't know, it's the Archive of Market and Social Research, and it started a few years ago when um, some 
people who've been in the industry for a long time who are retired or, or retiring from the industry realize that there are a lot of garages and lofts around the country with boxes and boxes of sort of dusty old research papers and questionnaires and you know all the sorts of the things that that you know used to be generated in the research industry but actually have a lot of historical interest and value and they were you know gradually getting damp or or being chucked out or whatever and they they decided that it was really important to try and preserve them both as kind of a history of our industry but also as a, a really unique history of you know British people really you know it's a uh, it's the voice of the consumer um going back to you know just sort of post-war days really and they over the years they've built up this absolutely incredible archive they've they've digitized it all it's searchable it's free to access and it's just incredible it's got conference papers it's got old research magazine it's got other publications but it's just got you know questionnaires yeah and, and research studies from yeah, every sort of sector that you can think of, both market and social research. And it's just full of these absolute, we, we, we call them nuggets of gold, and they really are just sort of little, you know, a data point here or a, or a, a story there that um, just shows you so much about how our society has either changed or not changed, actually, which is which is part of it, really, over the years. And it's, it's just a wonderful resource. It's staffed by entirely by volunteers, primarily people who've you know, been in the industry, um, you know, some, some for a very long time. And uh, yeah, increasingly, a lot of younger people who have, who've become interested in it and want to volunteer. So it does all, all sorts of stuff. So it, it, um, our, our primary audience is really ac- academics. Um, because you know anyone who studies modern history, just once, once they happen upon this resource, they're absolutely blown away by it, and it's it's starting to be cited in all sorts of research papers and and his, um, history and politics, academics actually also a bit of bit of marketing. So you know those are the people who use it, but the people who are sort of volunteering and, and being involved in it and promoting it are, are people in the industry. I think it's a shame, first of all, that it's been digitised because I had this vision of sort of end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> you know, this huge warehouse full of incredible artefacts. And the second thing that I was w- wondering on a more serious note is what sort of quality control do you guys, you know, you know, what take, I suppose, to, because I just think about if some of my old reports ended up <laughs> as an artefact, you'd be like, that was iffy. Is, is, that, is, that, is that a genuine insight into, you know, a set of consumers at a certain point in time or was it a slapdash poorly recruited <laughs> badly executed uh-huh. do you see what i mean yeah and i mean i think that's part of the challenge of dealing with the artifacts that are in there really i mean in exactly the same way as we would now evaluate a piece of research you know if you read something I read something this morning that was actually about um, what consumers think about the potential for AI in advertising and marketing content. And I was thinking, why ask consumers that? Mm. You know, what, what, why would consumers care about how AI is going to change marketing content? Like, really? Mm. Um, you know, surprisingly, like 47% said don't know or something like that. So you just think, well, actually, that's a pretty useless piece of research i'm not i'm not very interested in that so in the same way now as we would you know you have to bring your own analytical and evaluative skills when you use a piece of research anyone using the archive you know it, 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 you know needs to you know sort of caveat emptor even though it's free 
you know, you need to apply the same the same thought processes to it. Really, the archive itself doesn't attempt to make any any sort of quality control. It it just gratefully receives anything right. that it's given and makes it available. And and how you use it is is sort of up to you, really. Um, you know, it's, I mean, it's worth saying as well that one of the, the big things that the archive is doing at the moment is gathering present day research so that it can be available for the historians of the future. So you know, hopefully. Hopefully, um, the the stuff we're being given is high quality anyway. But you know, if it's not, I say, you know, it's just there for you to 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 make that evaluation when you use the data. And have you come across anything in your time there that's really blown you away? Anything that's really stuck in your mind? Well, we've published. I'm going to plug these. We've published three books based on the the nuggets of gold from the archive. And the first one's about research methods. Um, and how they've changed over the years. The second one, which I edited, was about social trends and how things have changed. It's in, in, called, it's in fact called How We've Changed. And then the third one's about contribution of research to politics and, and the public arena. And, and so uh, overall, I would say the thing that, that continues to amaze me is, is both how much some things have massively, massively changed and then how little some things have changed as well, you know. And I think it's sort of the the, the real human things that don't change or, or change very very slowly. Whereas our sort of our our manners and our cultural mores and those sorts of things they they're the things that do change over time. But my my absolute favourite little nugget in in book two is um, I found in an old research magazine a, a write up of a uh, Christmas party that was had at an agency. It was uh, a tarts and tramps theme, <laughs> and they gave prizes for the best dressed tart and the smelliest tramp. Oh, and I just think, oh my goodness, like they were so proud of it. <laughs> and you would just, it, 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 you know, you just, you just. Well, I'd like to think you wouldn't do that now. I know. I mean, well, can you imagine if you did? I mean, well, was... <laughs> I don't think that Box Clever has formally agreed what will happen this Christmas. No, there is still time. There is time. We've got a, a meeting about it on Friday, so I, I will uh, I'll mention the idea, but I don't think it will go down well. Avoid, <laughs> I would suggest. <laughs> oh yeah, how how times have changed. <laughs> and actually, uh, something that I, I wanted to ask you—it's kind of back to the AI, uh, only because a colleague and I were talking about this the other day. You know, we we're talking about kind of inclusivity within the market research industry and how obviously things are changing and rightfully so and and I, I guess we were talking about AI and obviously it's only as good as the info that you put into it do you think that that is also something that needs to be addressed and that you know we don't want to be holding mirrors up to AI and that's also a danger isn't it by by it not being a, a, an inclusive platform so to speak I think it's a huge issue. I mean, I, I get very involved in a lot of the work the MRS is doing around inclusivity, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a subject very dear to my heart as well. And yeah, I think it's a, an absolutely massive issue with AI. I mean, you know, and it's something that 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 I know is being being addressed in the scientific community, or certainly being raised as a concern, if if not addressed. I know also that there are a lot of um, sites that are preventing the AI crawlers that, that gather the data from from accessing their stuff now as well which means it's just going to be even more limited as time goes on and i think that um i mean there've been so, there've been calls to for you know mankind to put a stop to it i think you know there's a lot of people at a much higher level and much more clever people than me 
thinking hugely about these issues. Mm. So yeah, I think I think diversity within AI is going to be an absolutely massive issue, and I, I, I certainly don't know how it's how it's going to be resolved. You know, because I mean, we know already there are AI algorithms in all sorts of spheres that are already biased, that are already, you know, the, the things about, you know, facial recognition and all of that sort of stuff. Mm. We know it, it's already an existing problem. So, you know, I think it is something we do have to really think carefully about and, and you know, just be aware and always question. Unfortunately, that's something researchers are very good at. Yeah, that is very true. And kind of looking ahead, Judith, what's next for you? What, what have you got lined up? What being that career or, you know, outside of work? Oh, wow. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, well, I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna shamelessly plug some things now actually if I if I may. Please no, on. please do. So I'm a member of the ICJ, the Independent Consultants Group, which is actually just a brilliant, brilliant organization. And through the ICG, I have put together a, recently a, a small joint venture with a video maker and a strategist, and we're making insight-driven movies. You know, I'm 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 all about the written word, but that written word can be a script, right? And then video content, we all know how powerful that can be in getting a story across. So this is a, a very new thing that we're just launching at the moment. So I'm really, really excited about that. And where will these videos be available? How can people access these? We have a website, which is explainers.com. It's the word explainers, but you take the AI out, right. funnily enough, <laughs> because we do it with humans. <laughs> I love um, that. So if anybody's interested, they can check that out. And, you know, the idea is, we work with agencies for, to put together, you know, like sort of thought leadership pieces or de- or amazing debriefs on, on big pieces of work. And we work with client side to because I know that communicating insights within the client side is just a really, really big issue and a really big, difficult, knotty problem that a lot of insights leaders have. And, you know, finding really impactful ways to engage senior people in, in insights is a, a key issue and so th- this is in response to that so that's a, a new thing for me that I'm very excited about at the moment the AMSR again sort of plugging them we're having a big campaign to raise awareness in the research industry at the moment so you know really grateful to be on this lovely podcast today and hope that that will help to get the message out of it because not only is it a brilliant charity to support but it really is about sort of the, the heritage of our industry and the history of our industry and, and, and showing what a massive contribution we've made and how research really has changed the world over the years. So I really recommend people to, to look into the AMSR. We're looking for volunteers. We're interested in finding someone to help out with social media in particular. So there's lots of opportunities if you've got a bit of spare time and want to involve yourself with some super interesting people. I'm going to also plug my my dear friend Phyllis Van Gelder who I've met through the AMSR who is 91 years old she's the ex-editor of Research Magazine which is the equivalent of today's Impact Magazine and still you know working really really hard making a massive contribution to the charity and still to the industry and it's just an absolute delight to work with so yeah if you're interested in the in the archive you know come along and join us and volunteer and meet amazing people like Phyllis. Yeah Oh, no, thank you. Please do. This is an opportunity for you to to share these stories with with our listeners. And, you know, we'll support in any way that we can as well, getting that word out there. So, yeah, no, that, that's that's absolutely brilliant because it's it's I think um, part of the problem that the AMSR has is that people sort of think it's it's something it's part of the MRS. Mm. And we are 
closely affiliated with the MRS, but it's a it's a completely separate organisation and a charity in its own right. Yeah, and I think another problem that it has is that it sounds a bit sort of dusty and boring and like oh you know boxes of old research that sounds really boring. And you know I, I confess when when this when first spoke to me about it, I was like oh do I really want to get involved in this? But I'm so glad I did because I just absolutely have fallen in love with it. It's it's so interesting and such a such a worthy cause. And your own Andy Haylett wrote a fantastic article for our, our most recent book as well. Well, yeah, um, I'm thinking of going to Andy about volunteering uh, ideas. So don't, <laughs> don't you worry, I'll, I'll make sure I speak to Andy this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, no, no, he did He did a really great job. And we're, we're super proud of the books that we've, we've produced as well. And we have some really big names who've contributed to them as well, like um, John Curtis, Bobby Duffy, Rory Sutherland. So, you know, they're, they're really, really great pieces of work. Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely encourage anyone to buy all three as well because it's a bargain. <laughs> you can actually download them for free as PDFs, but if you want a beautiful shiny hard mm. copy, I make a contribution and it all goes to the archive. We are rapidly running out of time, mm. so we need to take the opportunity to ask some of our bigger questions. And one that I've wanted to ask all the way through this has been thinking of your varied and very interesting career, Judith. What advice would you have for any younger people? that are maybe don't know what to do or are on the cusp of a, a career in research, inverted commas, in, in inside. What would you say to those people? Oh, I would say leap in, absolutely, if you're on the cusp of it, because it's it's just the most brilliant industry with it, it's full of sort of, you know, smart and curious people who are, you know, it's not like advertising, they're a little bit, bit more diffident, but, you know, usually just look really, really lovely people. And there is... Yeah, as my my sort of wibbly wobbly weird old career has has shown you know you do not have to follow a path you do not have to come in as a graduate entrant and then just make your way up through the through the ranks as you know research exec or you know SRE it, it, it just does not have to work like that at all there are so many routes in and you know picking up on the diversity point as well you know the the industry is now starting to understand that we need to look for talent in so many different places and in so many different ways and at so many different levels as well so you know you there are so many different things you can do in this industry it doesn't have to be just that sort of typical research exact position and I don't know whether you think this is true or not but I wonder thinking about you talking about having done kind of the wrong A-levels for want of a better expression right I wonder whether this is an industry that looks more to the person and the way that they think and the experience than it does you know whether they've got the right degree or that their first job was in a certain place that is when I say inclusive I don't I don't mean inclusive in terms of sort of you know diversity in terms of like demographics I mean in terms of types of people and where they've come from because there must be some industries where everybody's kind of got the same background you know academically I mean but here I feel I mean our very own Matt Coggan has got you know his his degree is chemistry I think no one really does a degree purely in market research, do they? It doesn't. It doesn't really exist, you know. And and people do come into it from from all sorts of places. But I think the problem historically has been that people have tended to look for good degrees from the best universities. And from a diversity perspective, not everyone gets there because of other issues in their lives, not because they're not able but because, you know, their background or whatever has not led them down that path. But that does not mean that they don't have fantastic skills to bring and that they couldn't make a real difference in the industry. So, you know, we do have to get a lot more 
clever about looking in, in different places to find those people. But then I think you're absolutely right. What we should be valuing is not the qualification or, you know, the, the university that I came from, but those sort of soft skills around, you know, how people think and how creative they are and how adaptable they are and all those sorts of things. Because it can be a career, like you said at the beginning, that requires you to be really good across lots of different things, you know. And I think, you know, for me, again, being being good at the sort of scientific quantity side, but but being oriented more towards the arty side is actually a really good mix. And it's a, it's a very good place for somebody who who can't kind of make that, oh, arts or sciences, arts or sciences decision. It's a, it's a really great place for somebody to end up because you can bring all of that to it. I mean, I think that's a false decision, a false dichotomy anyway. I don't think that, you know, I think the, the arts needs the sciences just as much as the science needs the arts. They're, 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 they're not separate things at all, really. But yeah, if you're if you're one of those sort of all roundery people who's quite good at this and quite good at that, then you'll find something within this industry to do that that will be super industry interesting rather and, and give you a, a really exciting career. So I'd I would definitely push you over the edge of the cusp and right into the <laughs> right into the, uh, the bucket of market researchers. One the, a question that we like to to finish on is if you could say thank you or sorry to someone, who would it be and what would you say? You know what? I actually, I'm a huge believer in saying sorry. I think that um, we don't do it well enough. I think that that what passes for an apology in public life is woeful. And there's a wonderful book by Harriet Lerner. She's a, a therapist and psychologist, and she she writes from a feminist perspective as well. I think that it's I think it's called Why Won't You Say Sorry or something like that. And it's all about you know the all of the emotions that are tied up in an apology and and how to actually do it properly as opposed to some of the, the sort of weasel words that we see in public life these days so I can't think of anybody specifically at the moment because you know obviously I've, I've said sorry already to all of the <laughs> people that I've wronged and the people that I managed terribly all those years ago yeah I'm, I'm a great believer in sorry I think it's really important to be able to apologize yeah I agree and I'd, I agree that people don't say it enough probably or well enough or well or enough really. or yeah yeah it's just kind of like a passive comment isn't yeah. it I'm sorry that you're upset yeah <laughs> oh yeah you gotta love that like yeah the passive aggressive sorry <laughs> yeah yeah well words matter as I know and the way you say things you know is, is is really important we've got to say a big thank you to Judith for taking time out of her busy schedule to join us today we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have we look forward to seeing you at the next episode 